Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is the author Howdy Makowski, who for 25 years has studied ancient civilizations, history, ancient wisdom practices, hermeticism, and alchemy. He has also had a death experience that revealed the false covering of oneself and of reality. Howdy, thank you for joining me today and welcome. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, going to be uh, an interesting opportunity to talk to your audience. And uh, like I always say at the start of these, I certainly don't say I have all the answers. I don't have all the knowledge, but I've got enough of an interesting thesis that it's designed to get people to think and ask questions and find answers for yourself. And sometimes that helps by hearing ideas that are not what you normally hear. Can we start with you telling us a little bit of about your background first? Yeah. I do a short uh, overview. So I, I grew up in Canada. Uh, your normal kind of person, I guess, semi-normal. I was a hockey player for a lot of that time. I eventually became a stand-up comedian for like 12 years. Um, went through some difficult traumatic experiences though. So I went from being a fairly happy guy to um, at a father who stole all my money just before I was finishing university. Uh, when I finished university, I had a, a, an ex-girlfriend who'd been murdered. And these experiences and a few others began pushing me away from seeing the world was the, not the way I'd always been told it was. Things don't operate and fit the way we've been told. It's not as wonderful and nice a place. And I eventually wound up in a really deep depression. So deep, uh, I wanted to kill myself. That was like 1997. I just couldn't come up with a really clean way of doing it that wouldn't be messy for the person finding me. But in the midst of that came a program on television on Egyptian pyramid building. And it was like an instantaneous spark of like ancient Egypt has a wisdom secret and I need to devote my life to finding what it is. So I spent uh, the next 10 years being very fortunate, meeting um, a Korean monk, having time with several native medicine men on their reserves, some Chinese do Qigong doctors from China. I was very, very lucky over eight years, and but put, went through a lot of work, a lot of understanding, thought I knew a lot, wrote my first book, then had my next death. I've had a few death experiences, then had my next death experience in 2005, which in a sense revealed the non-reality of the self. I'd gone through the work digging through the reality of reality. Then I went through one seeing the reality of the self. I went through 10 years of kind of on and off periods of very, very high clarity and then very low um, confusion and even illness. Uh, that uh, culminated eventually. I came out of that 2019. I wrote a book on exposing the expositions. A book also came out about the death experience and the spirituality events around it called Falling for Truth. And then last year, over the course of the last couple of years, I, I wanted to uh, move into Plato's cave and specifically what is this reality and began to see that it's a it's a pretty dangerous, messy place and wrote to exit the cave, ending the reincarnation trap. And that's the short overview and wherever you'd like to go, I'm happy to go. You call your experiences death experiences. And I've interviewed about 
at least 400 people on their near-death experience. What's the difference between the two? And did you have any type of spiritual transformation with yours? Well, the, the, the first one, and again, I call them death experiences because I never, I never left this realm. The, death, the, the experience happened still within this material three-dimensional realm. The first one happened in 1998 or 99, I guess. I was on a street and I was replaying a conversation that I'd had in my mind the day before. And the woman asked me, why did you start all this work and all this journey anyway? It sounds stupid to me. And my response was in my mind, if I didn't, I'd be dead now. And in that moment, the, the, the street disappeared and I was on a... I was on a roadway and there'd been a, a, an accident between a large truck and a small car. And I, the driver of the truck was walking around quite dazed. They looked in the car. There was a, a female driver with a brunette hair and she was very, um, she was hurt, but she was okay. And then I saw a third car in the ditch turned over and I kind of moved over to the car, looked inside and realized the driver of the car was dead. And when I looked closer, I realized it was me. And it was sort of a sense of realization of I'm watching a moment of my death in an alternate parallel reality. So that experience in itself opened up a complete plethora of examination into, well, what is reality? How do we know what this is, what it is, and uh, how do we know this is the only reality, the only self we have? So that was the first death. I call That's why I call it a death experience, um, because it was me dying just in a different form. Um, would you like the second one? Or would yes, you like yes, to, to please. Sure. So then the second one happened yeah, in 2005, and I'd gone through, like I say, eight years of pretty hard, intense work. I was doing 14 hours a day of practice at the time. Whatever the the the, the monks and the the medicine men were giving me, I was doing them with a idea of testing reality. Can I prove reality is real? And it failed every time. <laughs> every single time I tried to prove that it was real, uh, I, I found it transparent. And I mean, there's lots of stories we could we could get into on the what I experienced over those eight years. But I was still very real. Reality was not, but I was real. Then I'd been hiking in the can in uh, Johnson Canyon, which is just uh, in the Rocky Mountains outside of Calgary, with a friend. We didn't know what Johnson Canyon was, which is Canada's like largest waterfall, one of the largest waterfalls. And we had hiked in from the top of it, so we had no idea what it was. And I slipped and fell into the river right in front of the canyon. And as soon as I was in, I realized I'm in pretty big trouble here. And I swam against the current as hard as I could to get back to the shoreline to reach my friend. And when I got to his hand, I pulled him in as well. And so we were both in the waterway. And in that moment, I realized this is where I'm going to die. And it was completely fine. It was, it was, um, it was just, I was going to get, I was going to die and I was going to have front row seats to it. There was nothing in me trying to live longer, do anything else. It was, it was fine. But once, once this, this, um, I'm calling it moment of acceptance happened, then there came this change and the change was everything i thought of was of had ever thought of as me was gone so thoughts memories experiences hopes fears everything everything i could have ever classified as me was gone all that was left was an awareness was a clear and uh, observating awareness and what i would call clusters of information uh, i could only describe it as like information would come up complete burst in front of you so to speak and it, whatever was there was understood, and it would just come up like this, 
Of course, this is happening in, in a microsecond, right? All these things are going on. And as I was moving closer and closer to the falls, I then got the feeling, I've heard a number near-death experience people talk about the feeling of like a download, like a stick had been placed in the back of my head and a whole bunch of information just placed into my into my consciousness. Just as I was at that point, just comfortable going and dying, I looked back and saw my friend dog paddling in place. And I had a, my first, this next thought of, well, if I don't get out of, if I don't get out of the canyon, how's my friend going to get out? And at that point, I hit a, a large boulder underneath in the water, deflected off to the side, crawled my way out and was screaming to him, you know, it's shallow, you can get out. And just as I was looking to try to find a tree branch or something, he was coming out too. And then we sat there for about an hour. We didn't say anything. We just we just sat. Uh, and that was a great part of this is I got to share the experience with someone else. And his experience was almost exactly the same as mine. He had also accepted his death. He had gone through all this. He kind of felt him had, had dissolved completely away. And once we shared our experiences and realized how completely similar they were, it gave us a great interaction point going forward. But the big part of coming out of that was the realization, me, the thing I see in the mirror every day, that's a fictional character. That's that's just another. That's not who and what I am. This is just this isn't this is a, a fake. Um, and the second that came out of it was this download, the information that's been in there, which has kind of taken 15 years to deal with, and it's been challenging at times to go through and try to figure out what's been in there. The third thing uh, was was two, and I'll stop. I'll shut up. And let you ask questions. <laughs> the third part of it was. Um, one was the beginning of a spiritual ego right away because when you get an experience like that when you get a part of reality revealed so clearly because everything's holographic you get the sense you've seen everything but you've only seen clearly a part of it and not all of it and it gets very easy for the egoic structures to think i know everything now and i got caught in that for a number of years this this because you feel like you've seen everything but you haven't that's one part that took me a while to begin to get comfortable what I feel like I understood from that experience and, and what, it, what I feel I still didn't. The second was the realization over time that I was also being manipulated. At first, I saw the whole experience as a wonderful, peaceful, joyous, uh, great thing. And I started to realize over time, there have been a lot of entities and parasitic beings and demonic beings that were a part of that experience and that were actually manipulating. I was on the path of writing the book I just wrote then. And because of that experience, I made a giant U-turn for a while into a lot of what would be standard spirituality, oneness, unity, uh, totality, and went away from digging into what this reality really is. And it's taken me 15 years to kind of get get back from that big giant left turn I took. I'm glad I've taken it. I'm glad I've been there. I'm glad I've gone through all of that. I think it's an important part of the journey, but it's just a part. And I'm going into the deeper and deeper phases of it. So that's the, the short the short version of it. And you can, again, just wherever you want to go with this, you just take it where, where you'd like. With your second experience, I feel that it's more like a near-death experience from just the other guests that I've had. You use the word acceptance, and what's commonly used with most people is surrender. They surrender to their death. And then the second thing that I, I find that's very common is the complete loss of self, like 
for example, it's very common that people will say, you know, I didn't even, I completely forgot about Howdy. I don't even care who Howdy was anymore. I, who, you know, who was Howdy? I'm in this amazing place. I don't want to label your experience, but those are just kind of some observations that I made. Yeah. Um, there's, there's certainly, and that's why it's been so helpful for people like yourself who are interviewing a lot of people with near-death experiences. And like, you know, I, I talk about it quite a bit in my book and how there's a standard experience. It looks sort of the same way. It's packaged a particular way. And then there's ones that are not like that. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm not necessarily 100% behind the, uh, let's say the, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That the that there are things going on behind the scenes that most don't realize are going on in those things. It looks one way, but something else is happening. And um, so, yeah, I feel like all of that was going on just, just on a very simplified way, simply because of the body was still in a sense struggling to live or die, but the personality or the being or the, the egoic self just, dissolved. And I think it's to me, one of the most interesting things about that part was here you were in the most, you know, you've got seconds before you die, seconds to determine if you live or, or die, thought didn't exist. And it was, again, how much focus we put on our thoughts and beliefs and our feelings. None of them were there when we needed them the most. So it was, again, another question of, well, then what actually is important? And for me, it was just what is observing? What is what is the awareness that is observing the experience? That was clear. That was clean. Everything else was like a muddied mess. Can you tell me a little more about what things happen during your experience that indicates manipulation? It's it's more I guess it'd be more after what it's more after the experience and watching um watching because for the first i would say 3 months it was a combination of complete clarity a lot of falling for truth was written in the first 3 months like just smoothly written down there was an ability to manifest almost instantaneously manifest to the point that it was frightening um i, I remember maybe a couple of weeks after the experience there was um there was a car that was parked too close to the end of the street and I knew they were going to get a ticket if the if the if the ticket people came by. And in my mind, I just thought if this car was just back like two feet, a foot, it wouldn't get a ticket. And all of a sudden, the car just the wheels just rolled back, and the car moved a foot backwards. And I kind of realized, okay, I I got to get a handle on what's going on here because um, thought is manifesting. Thought is manifesting. So I had these things happening first. So I'm going through all that experience. But like I say, that what was what was strange was I was starting, I could feel myself being monitored. So really strange characters would start showing up in places. If I go to a coffee shop, there'd be somebody very strange in the coffee shop, like paying attention to me. And if I paid attention to them, they would just leave. Um, I remember walking on a street on, on a, just by the river and the same helicopter flew over my head like four or five times. Like just, it would just circle and come back over my head, over my head, over my head. So I could see that for some reason I was being monitored for some unknown reason. And like I say, I was moving into, at that time, I was just starting to move away from all the work I'd done on the ancient Egyptians and the Maya and the Inca, and was starting to move into the Gnostic um, 
texts and what the Gnostics and eventually the Cathars and that had to say. And that's presenting a very different view of this reality than is normally standard. And I think there was something that didn't didn't want me talking about it, at least at that time, or um, at least I certainly wasn't ready to deal with it at that time. And um, just as I, yeah, as I look at it now, it's, of course, now I realize I've been manipulated my whole life. Like literally um, one of the exercises that I did way back when I first started was the life recapitulation. And now it is, it's, it's an exercise that I recommend just about everybody to do. We know that from the many death experiences that were shared, you, this life review is going to try to be thrown at you. You're going to try to get a life review placed on you, which is generally, it seems designed to throw guilt and shame at you. It's, it's designed to find whatever you did that was so bad that we're going to throw that in your face to try to indicate you're not good enough. You're not perfect enough. You're not ready enough. You're not, you're not something. And literally, I think you could be the greatest saint in the world and they're going to find the day that you, an apple fell from someone's bag on the ground and you didn't pick it up. And now that woman went home and that woman yelled at her dog and then the dog bit the next door neighbor and it's your fault. That's literally what these things become when you look into them. And so for me, Part of doing the life recapitulation, which is to review every moment of your life while you're still alive, to actually literally go through every second of it, you begin not only to see how the the, the errors of yourself, you, you go through that part of the process to see where you're not living in a very truthful or kind way, but you're also seeing how the external world has been has been playing with you, so to speak, without even recognizing what's been going on. You start to see how things in your reality and people in your reality have just been there to cause chaos and problems, not by accident, by design. And I think the more getting ready for the life recapitulation and having cleansed your, and I don't say cleanse yourself, that's a bad word for it, right? It's it's seeing yourself totally and clearly that when you hit that after death experience, and if you choose to allow them to give you a life review, these beings, then there should be nothing that's going to surprise you. And I think that's a very important part of it because if you have if you have things hidden in your past or things you still feel guilt or shame about, that's something that can be used against you. You can be manipulated through that. But if you you've I'm I got it all. I understand my past. I know what's been going on. I know where I transformed. I know what you know. The the life review then doesn't doesn't have the same kind of effect. It can't it can't take you into another place. So for me. The life recapitulation was such a valuable tool, although it took me four and a half years to complete and then did another one later. It, it, it is one of the many exercises I've done that I've been very thankful for years later from having put all the time and energy into it 20 years ago. If we put that into something a little easier to digest practically, what does somebody do every day? Do they just kind of review their life in general or try to think of the mistakes they made in their life and just accept them? No, because the problem, what the life recapitulation is designed to do is shows that we have a, an, uh, a mental structure of our life, what we believe has happened. And I didn't understand this until I did my life recapitulation. It wasn't until I actually had finished it that I got experiences started to come up that I had buried, that had been hidden, that had been changed around so much. And when I finally began seeing the real experience, what actually happened, it was like, how could I have forgotten this? Like this, this was a, this is a life-changing moment. How did I not remember this? So 
the life recapitulation is designed to bring these hid the hidden memories up. And of course, you have to start with what you can remember. But you, uh, my my simple suggestion for people, because doing a complete one is such a huge task. I've only known one other person in my life who's done it, <laughs> done the whole thing. But my recommendation now is that for if someone's interested, start by making a list of everyone you've ever met. This should take you a couple of months. That's all, just a list. And of course, you can avoid like, you know, a server at McDonald's who gave me my hamburger. Okay, that's it. But if you've had an interaction, if you feel you've had some kind of um, conversation that could have any kind of importance at all, they should be on the list. So pull out old phone directories, pull out old uh, school yearbooks, pull out old things you have from jobs you worked at. Take your time and get as many people on the list as possible. You're already starting to think about your life, just getting the names. Once you've got the names, put the names in order from the person you've most recently met all the way back to mom and dad, the first person you met. And then with each person, sorry, try to get two or three um, experiences that you had with them. You know, obviously some people are going to have 500, 1,000, 2,000 experiences, but try to get two or three that that signify that that person. Just doing that, that two to three month experience, uh, uh, workload will open up tons of memories for you, will open up tons of insights about yourself. And if you choose to do something and go further, you can, you know, like I've got things in my books that talk about it. And there's, there, there's things on the internet that tell you how to go further. But that would be my first step for people is just that you're getting a sort of short term overview of your whole life. And I guarantee almost if you just do that and finish it, things will start coming up. Memories will start to appear. You'll be like, oh yeah, I can't believe that happened with this girl I dated when I was 14. Oh, I can't believe this happened with this guy I knew when I was 28. Or they'll start to, little ones will start to appear. And that's what we're looking for. You're looking to find what's been, what's been buried and hidden. So that, that's my re short-term recommendation of how to begin the process anyway. You are very public in both writing and speaking about the reincarnation trap. And since you have been this public, have you found that the monitoring of you has increased? Well, maybe. Um, of course, there's a couple of things about it. Like, again, I know I don't have all the answers. I don't know what's going to happen after we die. I don't know for sure who or what created this realm. I've got, I know, I know for sure I've got parts of this, this information um, pretty clear now pretty pretty clear and straight. I know I've got other areas that I know I don't. And there's lots of work still to do. There's lots of understanding to go. There's lots of things I'm willing to overturn and change tomorrow if new information comes up. It, it's a it's a it's a journey to start with. So first step is because I don't have all the answers, there, you know, it's no big deal to start with of the of that process of of who's who or what might be concerning. The the, the positive part, though, that I think this is important for everyone to know, um, and that is, even though my message is negative, the core of the message. If someone gets through the deepest parts of what I say, it's actually very positive because it's about finding your own truth. It's about finding your own power. It's about finding your own uh, um, authority. To not giving up that authority to any outside being, no matter how powerful you think it is, it can't be. It can't be greater than the divine spark which is within us. So that's the core of the whole thing. So the more we get to know what our divine spark is, the more truth we know, in a sense, we begin to wear, you might say you're wearing a garment of truth. 
that's you find this in certain parts of the New Testament. This idea of what what is being worn, um, and it means meant spiritually, not physically. It's meant spiritually. And as you begin having this kind of garment, less and less things can affect you. So it's also this idea that even though you're moving into more difficult, I'm moving into more difficult um, information. If it's truthful then you'll be getting more and more protection from from holding on to what is actually true and letting go of false. And that's that's something that Richard Rose, who is a, one of the teachers I, I really um, hold on to quite quite good or feel quite strongly to, he, he was saying that you can never go looking for truth because you don't know what it is. All you can do is find false, remove it, drop it, let go of it, and keep moving. And eventually you will get to something that you can't drop. You can try all you want to make it false and you can't, and then you'll know you found the truth. So it's kind of the complete opposite. Everybody decides they know what the truth is and they're going to go out and try to prove it as opposed to what we can do is prove what's not true. And eventually you get less and less and less and less. And the one thing that's left, oh, there's the truth. Wow. Interesting. When I ask, do you want to come back earth next time around the majority of my guests will say no and you'll even see it in the comments that people will say yeah, i'm not coming back to this place can you tell us more about ending the reincarnation cycle and and how to do that well there's quite the <laughs> there's quite two the big questions question, <laughs> well yeah because I, you know uh all i can do is present some of what i found and allow again, everyone to think about it for themselves. I've come to see that now that the, the Gnostic Nag Hammadi uh, fragments, which eventually over time became what we know as the New Testament, uh, along with what people like the Cathars and, and various other groups that a long time ago, the the, um, the Church of Rome decided to exterminate. Um, that, that was something that fascinated me a long time ago, or very early on, was like the Cathars of southern France, which were a vegetarian, um, pacifist, um, very considered themselves very godly and uh, and um, very Christian. Why would the, the Church of Rome need to kill them and exterminate them? So right away, these kind of groups and individuals began to interest me very, very great because on the surface, there's nothing that should be scary about this group. Why would why would an all-powerful force be afraid of them? And I began to look more and more into what their message was. And now I began to piece together that we come, we begin this reality, in my opinion, with a foundational belief. And that foundational belief takes us everywhere we go from there. And that is a loving creator created this realm. Uh, created the realm for us to learn and grow as a type of school so that we can become perfect and join the creator in an endless afterlife heavenly realm. That's the initial uh, underlying foundation we all get at some point at a very young age. And I've now come to see the opposite, that we live in a realm created by what the Gnostics call a demiurge, what um, the Cathars call Rex Monday, the, the Egyptians call Apop. Um, which has created a, a simulated type artificial AI reality, which has created a fake copy of a true realm. There is a true realm. There is truth. There is there is something that is, I don't want to call it good because I don't want to label it. It's 
total. It's absolute. But our reality, and I mean by reality, not just the physical reality, the etheric realm, the astral realm, the angel realm, the super duper realm, the, the void even, um, nirvana, all of this is all within Plato's cave. It's all within this giant matrix reality. And the problem that the this creator, this fallen creator had was even though it made the creations, the creations couldn't move. They had no life. This is it. This is in all of the old these old myths, and they needed to get something to create the life to happen. And I'm simplifying, but that that is the divine spark. A part of the totality that's outside the cave, outside the matrix, was tricked coming in here, us, and we were then placed into these kinds of material bodies. Eventually, long story again, uh, and we are being used to power the simulation itself, which is sick but brilliant i mean if you devised a gigantic computer game and it needed a massive amount of power it would be brilliant to have the characters in the game be the ones that create the power to keep the game running and that's kind of what we've got and from that realization began to be seen and this is again just from experience it's partially from the mythology it's partially from my own experience it's partially from the experience of so many people i've come to know this is a world with a lot of trauma and a lot of suffering. And one thing that's interesting to me, because I, I watch some of your videos along the way of near-death experiences. And one thing is, it's so often that someone who does go through a near-death experience, they've had a lot of trauma in their life previously. They've often had a very difficult, hard life. And then they go through this experience as well. And it, it's like, we're trying to be... <laughs> This realm tries to tell us why it's okay. They try to explain it away, but a, if this was a truly loving, caring place, you wouldn't need the suffering. You don't need to torture someone to improve them. Uh, I never got better at school by a teacher who would whack me over the head with a baseball bat. I got better from teachers who spent time with me and were kind and helped me see through things. So it began, all of these things began to indicate this realm is designed designed simply to use us as a type of energy or food. And a good way to do that is keeping us in not only physical pain, not only confusion, but psychological suffering. We do a lot of the suffering to each other. And once I began to see all of this and begin to see the layers of how it's structured, you can begin the first steps of, you might say, unplugging certain parts of yourself from, from what's being created here. And begin to see that this, this, it's so interesting because to me, once I began to, like everyone, I think when I first began this study 25 years ago and realized that there was something completely different in this world, that the ancients were different than us, there was a knowledge out there that's different, our natural tendency then is, I want to fix the world. I need to fix the place. If the place is insane, how can I fix it? And you go out and you try and it never gets any better. And that's when you start to step back and say, maybe it's supposed to be like this. It's insane, but it's perfect. And if I'm trying to fix the insanity, I'm, I'm going against the system as opposed to seeing as I'm starting to see now, well, the system can do what it wants. The bliss place can be as insane as it wants. I'm not interested in it. And in fact, I'm not interested in having anything to do with this anymore. I'm interested in being sane. I'm interested in being total. I'm interested in being my completeness. I'm interested in home, going home. And so your energy gets changed. So that would be the, if I had to simplify your answer, finally, after all this talking, it would be 
how can you how can you find ways to stop throwing your energy outside yourself either for uh, manifesting changing altering fixing getting what you want and turning it all inward to the power source to say what happens if i keep all of my power inside what if i turn on this divine spark to its totality what happens then uh, just as an interesting science experiment and we can talk about prayer and a few other things that i've come to see so uniquely but for me, once the once the focus goes from out there to in here, everything changes. Everything has the possibility to transform and change, which would then be saying, uh, I'm going home. I think people will say that when you're on the other side, you are given the choice to come back or or do whatever. We may be coerced or manipulated to come back, but if we keep our sovereignty and decide to stay, what do you think we do next? So these are these are really good questions, Jeff. These are actually excellent questions. And uh, there's there's two parts to that. And um, and I'm just gonna mention them first so I don't forget them. I have to write things down and forget them. One, yes, you say is about this idea of our authority, and the other is this problem which we'll call the memory wipe. So I'll get into the authority first. There's a terrific Star Trek episode, um, Star Trek Voyager, known as Coda. And in the episode, the commander is dying on some planet, and she's having a near-death experience. And she feels she's dealing with her father, who's trying to bring her into this white light tunnel. But she begins to recognize things about the father that are not not as she normally real, uh, um, realizes them to be and figures out this is an alien in disguise. This is a, a demonic being pretending to be my father and trying everything to get her into this white light. And finally she says, oh, I understand it now. You can't force me to go. You have to get me to agree to go. And that's a huge part of what I've been watching through a lot of these near-death experiences is that it's all about getting the person, yes, to agree. Um, the problem is, is I, as I see now, 50% of the time, the person will agree automatically. The rest of the time, it, it, and it's so interesting because if you, if you look through a lot of the experiences people have, they tend to gloss over this part because the other parts are so beautiful. It's been loving. It's been wonderful. I've, I'm, I'm away from my pain. I've met my loved ones, supposed loved ones. We're not really sure who they are. Um, and then this being who, of course, no one has checked to see who am I really talking to here? What actually am I in contact with? And like you say, first they 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 make it simple and then they'll start pushing a little more. Then they'll start throwing in the you're not good enough or you need to improve. Then some cases, the, the being turns quite nasty and ugly. Often we hear these, how people will come in front of like a 40 foot high Jesus, or there'll be three or four of these beings together. It almost again, feels like a bit of a bullying um, scenario. So um, because to me, the feeling is that if you stand in your authority and say no, it's going to be very, very hard for them to force you to do it. Uh, but there's also been, I've, I've seen some cases where even that has happened, where even though someone has said, no, I'm not going back, they still wind up back in a body. And I think we get, we're, we're missing, there's a gap, something is missing in the experience. And now we move to, so we've got the, we've got the next, sorry, uh, <laughs> I'll finish this part, then I'll stop. And then I'll get to part two. And then you can 
bring your comments in. The other thing I think that now I'm beginning to understand about this is what we call the near, because it's a near-death experience, right? It's not a death experience. It's a near-death experience. And I, I, I'm, I never want to belittle anyone's near-death experience. I know a lot of people will be watching this right now and, and who've had them. And I, I want to make sure that you all know I fully um, acknowledge your experience. I fully acknowledge the realness of your experience. I fully acknowledge um, and, and thank that you're sharing it with people because there's no way research can be done if you're not sharing the experience. Uh, I'm just trying to take my years of research and study with the people I've studied with to look at them from a slightly different angle. So I'm not in any way belittling anyone's experience. But I'm now beginning to feel that like the near-death experience is like being in the dentist waiting room. And it's a fairly safe environment. It's a it's a comfortable environment. It's made to it's made to make that individual person feel comforted and safe. Very few actually go through the door to the other side and sit in the dentist chair. Now there are about ten percent of near death experiences that do have that seemingly next part of the process. The next part of the process is pretty messy and pretty pretty challenging and pretty harsh. And um, so my feeling is that even if you even if you're pushing and saying, oh, well, I'm not going back, there's a whole set of preparations to be ready to say, yeah, but I'm not going through with that either. I'm going to totally stand in my authority and I'm going to make I'm going to be able to go where I want to go here. And that's uh, that's one thing I think that's uh, one message I try to put across to people is that I never tell anyone, don't go to the white light or don't come back if you want to come back or don't reincarnate. It's just don't be pushed into doing it or don't make an, an immediate decision based on what you're going through. Stand clear in your authority and take some time, contemplate it. This is going to be a very confusing experience. So take some time to just say, hey, you know what, I'm going to get the lay of the land here. And if you're really a loving being who cares about me, you'll you'll give me some time. You'll let me just think about this. So let me go over here for 50 years or 50 minutes or whatever, contemplate it. Um, as soon as there's a feeling of pressure, like anything in our life, you know, you know, you're signing a bad contract when, when the person on the other side of the desk is pushing you to, you got to sign it now. If you don't sign it now, you're going to lose this opportunity, but better put your name on this. You know, if it's a really good deal, the person will say, yeah, come back tomorrow. Happy to see you. It's so challenging because again, like I'm saying there's the possibility of a huge trick in that being played in the near death experience, but Generally, when a person has a near-death experience and returns to Earth, they transform. They become a much better person. They literally become the kind of person, they're more loving, they're more kind to others, they're, they're involved in their community and their family. They're people, generally, I'd like to sit across a table from and have coffee with. So somebody would be saying, but so what's the problem? I said, well, the problem would be is if we're in a reincarnation soul trap and the whole part of the puzzle is to when you die to get you to agree to go into this tunnel and get your energy sucked out and go through and do it again through another hellish, potentially hellish life. Um, it would make sense that you wouldn't want people to know that, that you would want to give potentially what I might call a propaganda like experience to have a few people have, have it go through. Okay. So the rest will trust that, Oh, well, I don't have to think about it. I don't need to think about any of this. I'm going to go forward to it. And my, my answer is, not to say yes to something, not to say no to something, not to agree to whatever. It's to step back and for yourself in these experiences, figure out what you want to do. 
figure out what's right for you to do. What's and, and if you need to, you know, I think that's another great thing about, about Dzogchen Buddhism, because Dzogchen is all about being in the clear light, which is the, the void. And I think the idea is that if you are so used to being in the void that the moment you die, you probably just hit the void right away. And you're used to it. And that gives you some time to just, okay, I'm dead. What do I do now? What do I, what do I, what do I do? And what, what should I do now? And I think that's just an important part of this is to not share, not at least for me, not to rush into things. Can we stay in our own power and make a choice? Your thoughts on this being an earth school make a lot of sense. And I can only basically go on what my guests have told me. For example, is it possible that we just come here because we get off on it, even though it's a terrible place and, it, and there's a lot of suffering? It's just, you know, it's, it's exciting, exhilarating, and more. I don't know if any of us really would, at the deepest level of our soul, think that dealing with suffering and seeing other suffering is, is good. You know, I've, I've, back when I was still doing healing, I stopped doing that a number of years ago, but when I was still doing it, partially it was because I was meeting so many people who had such trauma in their in their past. And and I was like, I was like merging with them. So I was becoming their experience. I was having their experience. And it was for whatever trauma I think I've had in my life, this this was some of the stuff was horrific. And there's no way I would want that experience on any living being for any reason in any realm and and it's like if that's what the world and i know that's i mean how many kids are being like in the time we're having this conversation on planet earth the numbers would be staggering if we knew and that's just one tiny element of the mass of suffering that's going on here so i don't and i don't think any soul is sitting thinking this is a good thing. This is a good idea. Instead, we're somehow learning how to just just survive. In a, I mean, think of the animals. I mean, I mean, nature is a wonderful place. It's beautiful. It's a great place to get harmony. But we forget everything's trying to eat something out there. You know, how many worms have died in the last minute to feed all the birds? I've I got a cat who's a good mouse hunter. I've heard mice how they die when they when when it's being you know it, it's not a pretty picture out there. It, it's a slaughterhouse, and it's hard for us to finally step back and acknowledge. Yeah, you know, we live in a slaughterhouse kind of realm where everything is devouring itself for energy, and we forget where's all that energy going. Who is who or what is getting the benefit of all of this? sickness and that's where someone like robert monroe and his stories of luche and his ideas from 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 that come come together so you got that part of it to 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 question to really question about this realm the other is yeah this i mean i went through that for a long time too this this sort of the idea that's presented this is a school this is a place of learning and the challenges you get and the difficulty you have these are things where you're they're given to you they're gifts they're gifts given to you to transform yourself but i realized as i did wrote this new book the the problem with the memory wipe that once you begin to accept that reincarnation is a true thing as i've now come to accept that it is very much a true thing that we do reincarnate the the the, the number of experiences of young children who have presented information about lives they couldn't possibly know that have been verified correctly is is enough for me to to indicate it's true but it's uh, what people who've had these near-death experiences and have pre-birth memories keep telling us is one of the things that happens is a memory wipe. And it's in all of the 
all of the uh, mythological literature, right? The cup of forgetfulness, the drink of forgetfulness, the whatever. And if you're here, if you're there to learn something, one of the key elements of learning is memory. We have to remember what we've just done. I have to remember if but I touch stinging nettle, it burns my fingers. So if I want to make some stinging nettle and have it for tea, I put gloves on, I pick the stinging nettle and I put it in my cup. If every single time I have to go and touch the stinging nettle and burn my fingers because I don't remember, well, that's insanity. And that's kind of where we are. We we everything we've we've experienced in a past life is gone from our memory. We don't bring it with us. And that would make sense if this was a place of learning because then we would have known what we've gone through. We've known what worked, what didn't work, what was good, what was not good. And we could, we wouldn't need many lives. Under those circumstances, we would, we, we should be done after two or three or four of them. So the memory wipe is a very big part of it, which is what happens to the robots in Westworld, right? The robots in Westworld die, they get taken back to the control center, they get cleaned up, and they get memory wiped. So they can go back in the field and be and shot and killed again and not remember any of it. And to me, the only way a place of suffering and pain could possibly work is if nobody remembered it. So to me, the memory wipe is, is an indication, a sick indication that this place is not set up for us. And as much as, as much as we want to try to make it a place of learning, there is something to learn here, but it has nothing to do with out there in this realm, it only has to do with remembering who and what we are. And the other part, of course, that's memory wiped is what happens in the pre-birth world, in the afterlife world. What did we go through? What really happened there? What really happened with the beings that we came across? What really happened with the choices? And I, I mean, I've read lots of stuff about soul contracts that are made, that were pressured to sign, things that were forced to go through. I mean, it's it's a giant package that we just don't know enough about that we take as being there somehow for our benefit because it feels safer that way. If we have to start looking and saying the whole thing is designed to steamroll us, um, into into some kind of trapping world, it, we we would look at everything differently. But again, it comes back to the, the to me the, again this. But part of this part of all of the mythology, all of the story, all the things the medicine men taught me, all the things that Mister Park, the Korean monk, told me is that if you ever reach the totality of yourself, if you reach the totality of your being, there's nothing greater than you in the universe. Literally, there is nothing greater than you in the universe. And when you want this experience to end, you can just end it and you'll be home. And I've 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 held on to that for 25 years now, this realization of like we're constantly told why we are weak, why we need others, why we need authority, why we need to be told what to do, why we need to uh, pray and ask for someone else to do something for us. But if we just start to learn to do that for ourselves, we have everything we ever need. You just mentioned home. What does home mean to you? It's it's another one of these things I think that is so challenging because in the near death experience, that is that's a word that's used a lot, right? People say, "I feel home." That's I, I, I listen for this very very carefully. Now. I feel like I'm home, and I think I think on some level, what's going on is these beings are. We have what's known as the akashic records, which is a, a record of everything that's gone on in these experiences. It's like a giant data collection center is what it is. We have to be honest, but that's all it is, data collection. And it's collecting experiences, thoughts, feelings, everything. So these beings will have access to everything we thought, everything we've known. They'll know exactly 
what our weak points are, exactly what our wishes are. And they can, similar to what happens in the TV show, The Good Place, they can just manifest a particular reality if they want and get us to, that's built for us. That's another thing that's very, I, I think you start to notice. The experiences are built for the person that's there. And the 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 deep search for home, I think, is a part of, it's in every soul that's here on planet Earth. There's a feeling that we are split, that we're not whole. That there's and and the, I think what going home to me really means is if I simplify how how I've come to see it, um, what we truly are is two pieces that have been split. One piece, the divine spark, which is more like a masculine side, has fallen into into this matter trap, has fallen into the Plato's cave, and it's constantly searching for our other part what you might call the, a divine observer or divine presence or divine awareness. And that feminine half is outside the matrix. And we we sense this. We sense that we're not together, that that home is just a unification of the two parts again. And the problem is we feel that somewhere in this realm, whether it's here, the astral world, whatever, we can find this thing that we're missing. And people try everything to find it. And it's one of the great draws of a relationship union particularly a sexual relationship union is that it also it mirrors that slightly it mirrors the totality of what that would be like and but we can easily get um we can easily get absorbed in that experience and think we are doing we're doing the totality by something that's happening in the material and this of course is a spiritual it's it's a it's something that happens in the realm of spirit so home for me is not like it's not a place. It's not a feeling. It would be a reunification or a remembering of what you might say are the two true pieces of ourself, which currently when we just, when we got tricked into deciding to move into the realm of uh, knowledge of good and evil and the realm of duality, we were also split. So we were whole before we went in. You know, I'd say Adam was whole. Adam was split when Adam went in. And now Adam is searching for that other half. It's also the story of Narcissus, the uh, the Greek myth. Narcissus is rejected everything until Narcissus saw his reflection in the pond. And the reflection, of course, would be the true other half, which is why it looks like him, right? It's actually, it's it's us. It's it's our, ourself that is our other half. And then he gets focused on the material part of it and gets trapped as opposed to realizing the spiritual union that would be, so to me, that would be home. And home happens when you realize that this isn't home. So I, I make a joke when I kind of say, to me now, it feels like I've been at a party all night. All my friends have been there. It's been fun. We've had some problems. There's been some fights. Uh, we've had to deal with a couple of things, but now it's 3 a.m. and it's not fun anymore. And my friends are still up and they're trying to give me one more drink. Come on, one more, just stay. Have an and I'm like, guys, I'm over. I'm done. I'm going home. I I'm going home to bed. And that's kind of exactly what it feels like for me now in this reality. It's just, it, it it is what it is. I don't need to change it. The party's gone on, but it's over for me now. And I'm ready to go home. Do you think that when you do go home, all memories of all past lives will cease to exist? And also, while you're there, hmm. when you merge with the divine, is it a complete loss of sense of self? Yeah, the first, and again, these are now how I've come to to feel it through through where where I've gone and what I've done is, uh, I think once if you do actually go home, so you are actually back in the 
the Gnostics would call it the pleroma or the place of the, the father, which is a combination father and mother together. If you're back in that place, you would you would have access to all lives. So you would see that all lives that have gone on are in some way you. Uh, this whole material realm has some way been you, and you probably would have access or non-access to it. My guess would be you wouldn't be interested. You you would be you would be back to a you would back to be a, a, a more of a place of whatever totality means. And again, this is beyond what our little um, understanding, even our, our deepest spiritual understanding in this realm can totally understand. We can only get glimpses of it. We can only get ideas of it. And I, I don't think it actually, I don't even think it actually exists within anywhere in the realm other than as signposts, other than as pointers, other than as places of truth that are dropped in here. I relate it very similar to um, Sylvia in the Truman Show or um, uh, David and Jennifer from the movie Pleasantville. Something from outside the bubble, outside the realm that has come into this reality that is sharing something so unbelievably completely different from what everyone else has ever thought, but it's a pointer to outside the realm, to truth, to home. And in both cases, that's a big part of the journey of Truman going home. It's a big part of the story of David and Jennifer and the others in, in Pleasantville going home. So, and when we say merge with the divine, I always say that that's another tricky thing because as soon as we use the words merge, now there's two things. There's the, the thing that's me and the thing I'm merging to. So it's already duality. And to me, it would be not, and I know it's just a, a term, but it wouldn't be, it's not a merging. It would be a realization that you're already that, that, that very, that very uh, Asian phrase, I am that, meaning that it's not that I have to move or become, or it's, it's like, that is all, that's it already. It's just, there's been like this giant wall or this giant slice that's happened that's blocked 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 the totality of it but it's never actually gone it's very hard to explain in words um but i know some people who've gone through certain parts of near-death experiences would know what i mean and um but a lot of that a lot of that also came like i say from because i know you do a lot of um, the paranormal stuff and, and dealing with reality as well not just near-death experiences so a lot of these things started to be shown to me like 20 years ago when I was just digging into reality, when I was digging into how weird this place is. And it's been all of these experiences, all these little things like a jigsaw puzzle being put together. And then I'm just one piece of a giant, more giant jigsaw puzzle. It's another reason I'm writing the books and sharing the stuff is I know I'm just a piece and there's a hundred other pieces out there. And, and the hope is that others will be willing to share all of our pieces together. And if we all put our pieces together, we truly might be able to get a glimpse of what totality actually is. If we try to hold on to just our one piece and say, I'm the only one that's right. No one else is. And I'm going to hold it and keep it. And I'm not sharing it. We're not making the jigsaw puzzle that we need to make. So it's another reason I'm doing all this is because I feel there's something I have that's valuable, but I know others have things that are valuable too. And we all have to piece them together and find out what do we have and we put it together in one giant tapestry. Some of my guests will report going to another planet, most commonly the water planet, during their near-death experience, and some will comment about encountering extraterrestrials, more alien-like. What is your take on that? Yeah, my guess would be is, is uh, there's a lot of, again, the experiences will be tailored for the person. 
Um, I would like a, a person who's very scientific and very mathematical will have a different experience than someone who's been very musical oriented. And, and you know, so the experiences will be tailored, I think, first to the person itself. For me, the astral realm is a place of, which is where we're going when we die, is a realm of beings. And those are those are mostly beings that are getting energy from us. And um, these beings can either be what the Gnostics call archons, which are the original um, the original creations of the demiurge, in a sense, the demiurge created a bunch of helpers to put the world together. And it's one thing we can sometimes call extraterrestrials or aliens when they inter interact with this world. We also have something called thought forms. When a thought, when we have a thought form and we project it into the world, is known as a tulpa, right? It's one of these things that we can we manifest our thought into a into a being. But our 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 mental uh, structures manifest on the astral world as well. So if our thoughts are always something negative, we'll create a negative thought form. If our thoughts are always positive, we'll create a positive thought form. That doesn't necessarily mean the positive thought form is helpful. The positive thought form is still generating energy from us. It's one of the reasons people can create a like um, an idea of an Asian master when they meditate. They literally make it, and then they've manifested an Asian master in another realm, so to speak, who keeps demanding that they meditate to keep getting energy from them. It's just, So it's this very strange thing that's going on. And I think when we're there, we are interacting with a lot of these beings, partially that we've created ourselves and partially that exist already. And my feeling is that, and and from so many uh, certain near-death experiences I've gone through and, and people I've talked to, they like to they like to pretend to be what you want them to be. So yeah, it's nice to see dead grandma. It's nice to see Buddha or Jesus. It's nice to see, but um, how do you know? How do you know you're not seeing um, something in their true form? And so I think when someone is seeing aliens, they're probably seeing things in their more true natural form. Now, there's a second piece of this, and then, again, I, I hate because I sometimes give long answers. I, I kind of ramble a bit. But there's also an interesting theory that there's a second type of extraterrestrial alien that interacts with our world. They're not these alien beings. They're not demonic beings. They're, they're humans from the future, humans from the future that have gone through because we're going through another We'll call it reset. You can call it an apocalypse. You can call it a, a mess, chaos, whatever you want to call it in this realm. It's happening now. They, they didn't choose this word by accident. And it's why my World Fairs book now from before becomes so valuable because I think I'm looking at a previous reset and what's happening now. And there's indications that from what's going to happen now, humanity will actually break off into two. There will be a spiritual type of humanity that will, in a sense, be done with this realm, there'll be another set of humanity that will become very materialistic and will lose their spiritual connection and possibly even lose their soul and sink completely into, into this next simulation, the 5D world, which will be another layer deeper in the simulation. And that the extraterrestrials are humans from the future who are coming back here trying to find how how it can be stopped to happen so they can regain the souls they feel they've lost. So it's a pretty, it's very difficult stuff to think about, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't think about it. It doesn't mean we shouldn't question some of these things, 
Um, just because something is difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't think about it and discuss it. So who or what are these people in the near-death experiences interacting with? I, I, I don't know, uh, as probably they don't fully know either. The experience, 100% genuine. Um, I'd love to be able to hear more of the the people who I've heard and be able, I would love to ask them more detailed questions and, and whatnot. And, but it's that sense of here's a being in front of me in the after death realm. How do I really know what I'm dealing with? Um, because I know from my own dreams, how many times let's call them parasitic entities have pretended to be a family member, pretended to be a good friend uh, is, 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 is playing with my energy in the dream is the best way I can describe it. And I get up in the morning and I feel awful, like I feel exhausted. I feel like just ill almost. And I realize that wasn't my friend in the dream. That was another thing pretending to be my friend. It was, it was, it was manipulating me. And if I wasn't aware of that, I would spend the next five, six hours the next day spitting into, into all sorts of trouble and mess for myself. And I have to catch it right away. And I realize if they're doing it in their dream, they're, 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 they're going to do it in any level. And we have to be so aware. We have to have such an incredible amount of awareness and such, again, this incredible power and authority over ourselves to be able to say, wait a minute, I've got the power. I've got the decision. What is going on? Uh, I'm not going to accept until I know. And I think that's that's the value of anything in our realm. Don't accept until you feel you truly are at least close to knowing whatever's whatever's around you, whatever's dealing, whatever you're studying. I think general detractors of reincarnation would say, why are there so many people on the earth at this point? You know, there's 8 billion people here. There's more than ever. Where are all these people or souls coming from? Have you thought about that? And have you thought that perhaps other spirits or whatever we want to call ourselves here are coming from other realms? Yeah, we've got two different parts to that. Yeah, you've got the answer of this earth isn't the only one place there is, A. Um, like I said, I know I now know there's parallel type realities, parallel worlds. There'll be other worlds that are nothing like ours, but are still have different places in the entire um, visible, invisible structure of the Plato's cave that we're in. Um, my feeling, though, is there's only a limited number of souls. I'm beginning to think now we're talking anywhere between five and, say, 25 percent of the people on Earth are Earth souls. The others would be similar to what you would classify in uh, now. I guess they call them a non-player character, but I hated that word. So I, I developed, I use the, I'm now you're calling P, PSVs, possible soul vehicles, is what I'm calling them, um, that are, so to me, uh, one theory I heard is that because there's been so many of these thought forms and mostly you know demonic thought forms that have been created in the astral realm demanding more and more energy from from this world, they've been they have been the ones that have producing more and more human-like shells to create more energy. They don't necessarily need souls, they just need activities, they just need thoughts, they just need um so to me that would that would be a big re that would be a big explanation that not all the human shells you see walking around then are humans. And I knew this 20 years ago, but I had only, as uh, I'd ran into what I might call spirits or guides or something in, in a spirit, in a human form, but I never really started, it took me a while to start really checking in to wait a minute, is the person in front of me, what I would classify as a human, like I always think, or are they something else? And so many, I noticed 
wooden is a really good word. Um, a bit robotic is a really good word. And I don't think that's just levels of consciousness or, or anything. I, th I think there are, and who knows, it could be as high as a 50-50 split. I don't know. But my feeling would be then is there's only a certain number of divine sparked created into souls that have that are in this realm going in and out in and out in and out and the rest are just extra energy factors that are built by the system and are built to create different experiences different but that doesn't mean i'm belittling i don't want anyone to think i'm belittling um human population because every human every human shell just like every i think every animal shell every tree every rock everything has the possibility for gaining a divine spark or gaining their own, you might say it in, in sort of religious terms, gaining their own salvation. So to me, I see no difference in the possibility of a human a person in a human body, whether they currently have a soul or they don't, potentially gaining one and returning to the, the, the total source. I feel the same for trees. I feel the same for giraffes. I feel the same for everything in nature. I feel everything in our realm has the possibility of, of reaching the same totality and maybe that's why i've always felt a, a deep connection with nature because i know it's i'm not any better than it I, I i just because i'm in a human form i'm not any better than that plant outside or the the moose that's outside my front door or anything else we are on one level we're all equal we are all beings in a realm that we don't understand that are all going through difficulty and challenge with some interspaced very nice moments with some interspaced very beautiful experiences but we're all having the same challenges and suffering so i feel a sameness not just with humans but with everything but i still know that doesn't mean i can classify everybody everybody necessarily exactly the same there seems to be differences and it's okay to try to figure out what the differences are do you think mm. it's possible that each one of us is the only real character and everybody is an npc right solophism right where basically we're like you are the only real character and everyone else including me talking to you now is just is just yeah like extras in a movie right um uh, that's something I think we you can't throw it off the table. I mean, like anything, you can't just we can't just throw anything off the table because we can't you can't necessarily you can't prove that it's true, but you can't disprove that it's not true. So we have to kind of keep it as potential. The challenge is, I think, if someone takes that as their main guiding philosophy, I mentioned this in an interview a little while ago. There's an author that had that similar presentation, which is a guy named Jed McKenna. And while there's a lot of truth and things that are valuable in his books, the problem is if you if you move into it too deeply, you can almost you move yourself into almost a narcissistic kind of realm then because then if you're the only thing that's here, you're the only thing that matters. And it also then means anything you do to anything outside of yourself has no consequences. So that that's I think a bit of a dangerous and and, and it, but it might be true. It's just it's just how would you if you're going to follow that potential philosophy? How can you follow that you might say and at the same time cover your bases so that if that turns out to be not exactly true and you find out certain things did make some sort of difference, how can you how can you comfortably put those two sides together in your day to day experience to kind of um, how to say this again, it's, it's a sense of, we're pretty sure we're going to get a life review one way or the other. We're going to get reviewed on our life. So on one level, if you say it doesn't really matter what you do per se, 
what what matters is what is what's going to be on that life review that you're going to have to potentially deal with and so from that perspective the the better i think the more clean life we've lived and the more the more va- the more value we've put in the world i don't want to say good i don't want i don't want to start labeling like you have to be that there's anything to do with perfection or there's anything like you have to be special or you have to be important or you have to be better or you're not good enough it's nothing like that it's just Am I finding ways to be valuable to the reality I'm in? Is is in some way this reality better better because of what I did today? And I think if you take that into your life into your life review, no matter what, you're going to feel fairly confident starting as it begins, no matter what's going on, because you feel at least, you know, I, I at least was putting an effort in every day to do something to make it more valuable. Maybe it didn't work out that way, but that was my intention. So to me, I think that's a, that's a whole part of the. If you're going to, and yeah, who knows? Every single round, there could be 8 billion worlds with 8 billion, only one individual having one tailored experience. And the whole reality is just a giant, uh, I mean, who knows? This Plato's cave is just immense. And it's got so many different layers. It's got so many different hiding pots. It's got so many different deceptions. And I think, therefore, you can't throw anything off the table all we can do is work the best what our experience tells us the way things are and navigate as best we can with what we figured out. You say so much amazing stuff that it's hard for me to kind of focus on where do I want to go next to either comment on what you said or well, ask got a, a chance. New... I just want to make sure that you, you know, I think you do great jobs with your interviews. Like I said, I've watched some in the last Thank few you. days to kind of get ready and, and you do a really good job in the presentation of it and allowing people to share and speak. Mm-hmm. There's some people who they, they butt in a little too much or what, and you allow someone to speak and you have really good ideas. I just want to make sure you, you and everyone's heard that, that you do a really great job with these interviews that you do. Oh, thank you. I think we could agree that some people suffer a lot more than others, but do you think it's also possible that some people barely suffer at all? And if so, why is there such a big difference? That is true. There are some people who go through life pretty smooth, actually. You know, they get born to very nice parents. They're loving to them. They're caring. They're very... They're very open to them. Their doors, their doors are open. They get, they seem to move through life well, um, and that's great. Uh, I mean, I like having nice, clean, beautiful experiences too. They're very, they're wonderful. However, I've learned that if you're having a really nice dream, you're not interested in waking up. You're only interested in waking up when it becomes a nightmare. So part of Part of the trauma that is the good part of this place, of the challenge of this place, is it starts to make us say, what the hell's going on? I want to get out of here. You know, up until, for me, um, Jones' murder in 1994, up to that point, I had really held the belief that if you just followed the rules, go to school, go to university, get your degree, find somebody, get married, get a job, have some kids, do that. Just If you just follow all these little things, be a nice person, say, smile when you're supposed to smile, it'll all work out for you. Here was a person who was living life perfectly. She was living exactly as you were supposed to live, and now she's dead. And for me, that was like a giant light switch going on to say, then the rules of this realm can't be correct. If the rules were correct, she would still be alive. So something is not right here. 
And a lot of people might say, you know, I'm not on a spiritual path because this person, I'm not meditating. I don't do this. I'm not going to this ashram. I'm not, but I'm thinking a lot about the divorce I went through and I'm really thinking about what got me into it and how I lived and the choices I made, or I'm really thinking a lot about, I had a, I had a child die last year and it's been real. I've been, I've been thinking about it constantly and I'm really questioning things. That is the spiritual journey. Deep introspection and open questioning of who you are, what you've done, why the world's been the way it is. That's it. That is truly the spiritual journey. So what's interesting is so many people I've met on in the last 10 or 15 years who think they're not on one because they're not they're not living in a certain package that is being presented are doing real spiritual work and actually are moving in tremendous ways that they don't even realize. And I'm just pointing, saying that out to a lot of people out there who you may think you're just going through a lot of stuff and you're dealing with it. That's the work. That's actually the true work. And the other stuff is just extra pieces that are added on top of it. If you're just doing the extra pieces and you're not digging through what's going on in your world, then you're not, you're not going through anything. Now we've also got, like I mentioned, we've got the NPCs. And so we've got We'll call them individuals. Celebrities are a really good one. They seem to have these wonderful lives. They're presented to us as if their life is wonderful, that we should aspire to be like this person. But we're not seeing their whole true existence. We're not seeing what's really going on in their life. We're not really seeing behind the scenes. And we don't know for sure that certain things aren't being scripted into our reality for beings to in a sense, make us feel bad that we're not having their life, that uh, we are we are living, you know, um, a really good example would be, uh, yeah, somebody next door is living this perfect life, and maybe they've been placed there to make us feel there's something wrong with us because I'm having this difficulty, I'm having these challenges at work, I'm having these challenges with my husband or my wife, or, you know, there must be something wrong with me then because look how perfect they are, not ever thinking, wait a minute, how do I know that might not just be something that's been presented in this realm that's actually not attainable for divine spark going through the the experience of finding yourself? Because finding yourself, as we just said, is a part of digging through difficulty, digging through trauma, digging through what's not right about this realm, what the insanity is. So possibly the, some things that are presented as perfect might be just a distraction. Some others might be just unbelievably lucky. You know, I would assume not every life you're going to go through suffering and difficulty. Every once in a while, they're going to put you in a life. You would just recommend it's going to be, they're going to give you a smooth one. They're going to give you an easy round to it. And so, and maybe that's the one they try to remember you a little bit more before they put you back on a whole other cycle. Because it's also interesting. I don't think we go into lives individually. I think we go into the whole cycle of lives as one. I don't I don't see time as linear. I see time as cyclical. I see time as, as happening all at once. So I don't see them as past lives and future lives. I just see them as lives. So therefore, for me, what happens in one life can't really dictate what happens in another because to me, it's all part of one giant package that's been placed into the machine all at once. And they might just have certain ones that have already been set up that are easier than others as a just as a break, just as a break from the lives where, like I say, some of the people are just living through hell. And if you're living through hell, 
you don't deserve it. I know I, I know certain religious traditions try to say the reason you're going through hell now is because in your last life you were such an awful person. It's your fault, and the and this reality is set up to punish you by what's what you're going through now because of what you did in a past life. Nobody deserves what you're going through. And if if it's in any way true that in a past life you did some things that were really terrible, then the best way to, to do that would not be to torture you for it. That's what demonic beings do. They torture. Instead, you would have the opportunity to grow and transform in a very positive way peaceful guidance and understanding so I, I try to i try to also remind people you don't deserve it it's not really your fault look into the whole system you're in and that might release some guilt and shame from what you're feeling that it's we should be asking the system to be judged not us since we have the divine spark within us and we're probably more powerful than we realize do you think it's possible that at some point we can figure out how to manipulate this simulation for our own benefit? Yes and no. Uh, certainly that's what a lot of ancient knowledge is about. That's what well, the work of Pythagoras and various other things, you might say it's finding, it's finding ways to hack into the code. And I certainly know that's possible. And I've been to ancient sites all over the world, and I know that part of what those ancient sites the real ancient sites are doing are giving you an entrance point into the into the into the code of reality and you can start playing with it the problem is again is this idea we we've been given this and we've been given this belief that it's our job to manifest it's our job to fix it it's our job to create here um and and change reality and i begin to see that reality is this is set up the way it's set up what we can learn to do, though, is begin to change and transform our experience, our own our own piece of this realm, you might say, and perhaps the 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 some people that are close to us. And particularly if we ever had the chance to live in, say, a tribe like in the in the ancient world, where you had a hundred or two hundred people living in a small village who might all be very wise, very connected, you might be able to create in that space um, a bit more controlled controlled and, and experienced. But as soon as I think as you start trying to go bigger and bigger and bigger, the system is going to find ways to, to make that an energy draining experience rather than an energy positive experience. But simple answer, there's no question that certainly you can learn ways to do things in the realm. Again, it's another great Richard Rose quote, you can move mountains, but mountain the mountain has to agree to be moved. And that's a very native a teaching that came back to me was right from day one that my medicine man taught me that I couldn't go pick a flower or take a rock from nature without first asking the flower or the rock, do you want to come back with me? The rock or flower might be really happy where it is. Why should I, why should I assume I know more what the, when the flower does, but if the flower said it did want to come and it wanted to spend time in my house, leave an offering, leave some thanks and, and um, make that connection. And that leads to a concept of prayer, which I think I should share now with, with everyone as well. I think this would be valuable. So I've been going through for quite a long time through how the natives taught me to pray, which was to say thank you, which was not to ask for things directly, but was to say thank you for what was and would be coming in your life. So I thought I understood native prayer. 
But as I've been working more on Exit the Cave, and I was realizing how much prayer is dictated to something outside of ourselves. It's dictated to a being that's greater than me, who I have to ask, please, please, please bring this and do this in my life. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. And I started realizing, well, why don't we pray to ourselves? Why don't, if we have the power, why don't we pray to ourselves? And I was sharing this with another medicine man friend of mine, Jerry, who lives in, in uh, France now, and he told me a story. And he said, uh, about 20 years ago, there was a bad drought that happened in um, New Mexico somewhere, and they brought some local medicine men in to pray for rain, but it didn't work. And after another couple of weeks, they brought another medicine man in from somewhere in the north. He came in, did his ceremony, and it rained that night, and it rained the next few days. And afterwards, they asked him, why did your ceremony work when the others didn't? And his response was, oh, the other medicine men, they were praying for rain. So if you pray for something, it means it doesn't exist here. I was just praying rain. So when I when Jerry had finished the story, I said, so Jerry, what, what this medicine man is saying is he first became rain, that he actually was rain. So he was praying rain to rain. So the only thing that existed was rain. So it had to rain. And Jerry said, yeah, now you're getting it. And that next day, because I was picking blueberries at the time, it was time of the, of the year, dear, I do my blueberry pick. And of course, I'd always learned to go out and leave an offering of thanks to nature and thanks to the blueberries. But this time I said, why don't I become a blueberry first? So I took 10 or 15 minutes and put myself in the space of a blueberry. What does a blueberry think? What does a blueberry feel? What's it like to be a blueberry? And once I felt I was a blueberry, then I made my prayer to the other blueberries. When went to pick that day, there were so many blueberries, I literally could have picked for 20 hours. And it's like, how did we not get taught this? Become the thing that you're praying for, and it would be automatic. And it's like, there, there's, it's like all of these little things are just, they're there, and we've just missed them our whole lives. And it's, um, yeah, it, it's just such an amazing thing when you begin to discover the little hacks, like you say, of hooking in and, and how to react or how to interact well with this reality. Now you said that you first visualized or prayed that you were a blueberry and then you mm -hmm. prayed to the blueberries. So what right. was your thought process or what did you actually think when you meant when you prayed to them? Were you still asking or what? No, no, I didn't ask for anything. Again, I was I was I was uh, following the way that the, the my native teachers had taught me, which was to um, just thank them. So I was, I was in this case already thanking the blueberries for their existence, thanking the blueberries for um, being so healthy and strong, um, for uh, in this case making sure that they were they were um, comfortable in the forest, that they would be willing to come back year after year to help us. And I was I was trying to share and I was trying to feel that that um, gratitude um, from blueberry to blueberry that to let them know that the, the ones of you that are going to come with me when I'm back in my human form uh, are going to be sustaining me for the winter and helping me stay healthy and helping me have the things I need over the winter time. So it was this kind of interaction. It was um, one time when I, one of the first prayers I'd ever made, this is with Dennis, an Ojibwe medicine man that I knew in, in Manitoba. And he took me out the forest and he, he and, and native native indians that pray often with tobacco because for them they feel that tobacco is the the smoke is like the the, the prayers get in the smoke and, and 
makes it to the spirit. Uh, but you don't need to smoke anything. We just, uh, I, I, uns I used unsmoked tobacco. So I made my prayer and I left it on the ground. And then he said to me, okay, now the prayer is done and it's ha it's going to happen. Don't think about it anymore. I said, and I was like, what do you mean? I said, never think about it again. It's going to happen. It, it's happened. It's, it's, and I said, it's going to, it's happened. That was his way of describing it. Even though it was a prayer about something going forward, his words was, it's happened. And this is a really interesting way. Again, the natives, the natives will always say, thank you for the gifts you, like if say someone's sister is sick, thank you for the gifts you'll be giving to my sister. They would never even say thanks for the healing you're going to give, because in a sense, that's 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 boxing in the gift that's going to come. They're just and and they're by saying thank you, it means it's already happened. They're not asking for it. They've already they they believe so strongly that it will happen. So they even though it's not here yet, they're saying thank you for its soon to be appearance, and they put no box on it because help for help might mean something completely different. And maybe there's something in the illness that needs to happen for a little while, and then something will happen in two months that will be the change. It's not the right time. So they say it in such a way that is so open and so inviting in their prayer that it's it, it, it is actually beautiful. And it's like I say, I'm still 20 years down the road, and I'm still working to understand what they do with all of this. It's it, it's uh, it's another of these many gifts I had so long ago to have been able to see these up close, to see how they do things and to be able to ask some questions of them and and slowly begin over time to begin assimilating what this knowledge really is and how how we apply it. Howdy, due to time, I need to change gears with you. Your most current book is called Exit the Cave. What are the titles of your other books and where can people find them? Yeah, so that's the new one. The one prior to this is called Exposing the Expositions. It's a look at the world fairs of the 1850s and the very strange, bizarre stories around all of them. Uh, Falling for Truth was before that, and that's a story uh, which includes my 2005 death experience and digging in sort of digging through my spiritual journey to that point and what I thought was valuable or not valuable before that was power of then a book on ancient Egypt, which I'm actually going to start taking. I'm going to take that down now for sale soon because uh, I, there's many things in there. I, I just don't totally believe, but I, I think I'll write a new Egyptian book in the course of the year that, that sort of updates it. Uh, you can go to uh, my website is Egyptian wisdom revealed.com. I know it's a terrible web name, Sorry, uh, but that's the name, and you can you can see access and read some sample chapters. And of course, if you go to a place like Amazon, uh, that's a place where you can at least see the books. They're available at just about any bookseller you want to buy them from. You certainly don't have to buy them from that particular company, um, and you can pick them up from there. Uh, there's a Exit the Cave also has a PDF file if you'd like to just buy it as a it's like a, I think it's a six dollar donation or something if you just rather not have a hardcover book, but uh, you can get that through through there. And my web channel, my YouTube channel is Howdy McCoskey Talks. I guess there's two or 300 videos on there of various subjects you're welcome to listen to. And um, of course, it's it's uh, it's always nice if you think there's something of value in what I say as an author to pick up a book and see what's in it and, um, you know, see if you think it's valuable. It, it's 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 a way of helping uh, helping the research along to further projects. After watching this podcast, people may want to reach out to you. And ask you questions. Are you up for that? Sometimes I am. The the, the challenge always is is um, a lot of cases. I feel like uh, I don't want people to think I've got 
answers necessarily for them or that I've got uh, I've got something that they're missing necessarily but um if if they don't mind that I'm uh, I might be willing to help them connect them with a person that I think might be able to give them what they need I, I do that a lot where people uh, get in touch with me about something and then I say I think I know a really good person who could be helpful for you so as long as you're comfortable that if you ask something, uh, the answer might, or the suggestion for something might not come from me. I might give you a suggestion of, I think you should talk to this person. This would be great. Um, then it's fine. Yeah. As long as you're, you're, as long as the person is comfortable with that. Um, I try to direct, I try to direct where I think the best, where the best help could go to anybody who asks for it. Before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Of course. Um, in a sense, to me, everything is positive, even though like I say it sounds negative because we are covered by so many walls of deception and and it's okay to go through those walls. It's okay to go through what seems negative to remove all of these walls because the end result of it will be the truth of yourself and the truth of reality and the truth of everything. And if you're, this is one of the most powerful, okay, here's, I'll, I'll leave it with this. One of the most powerful tools you have on your journey is commitment. The commitment to do whatever you say you're going to do. And you start small. If you say, I'm going to do the dishes every day after dinner for seven days, you do it. You finish it. If you say, I'm going to walk around the block for a week, you walk around the block for a week and you keep your commitment. Eventually, you make bigger commitments and bigger commitments, and you keep those, and you start building your own power, building your own strength. You start building the, the self-confidence that you will be able, you can and will do whatever you set your mind to. So eventually, if you start saying, I want to know what God is, I want to really know what happens after I die, I want to really know what truth is, then you know you'll have the energy to finish that commitment as well. So to me, start with your start with working with your commitments keep your commitments, learn that the universe is going to try to, even from walking around the block for seven days, the universe will try to find a way to get you to not do it, to stop, to do something else. Keep those small commitments and eventually you'll find you keep the biggest commitments you ever choose to yourself. Howdy, thank you for that message and thank you for being my guest. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.